You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Canva presents unexplained appearances. It was an ordinary workday until... That presentation appeared out of thin air. Also, it's eerily on brand. Wait, did that agenda just write itself? Words appear, making this unexplainable case... Unexplainable? It's Canva's AI tools. I can generate slides and words in seconds. Really? <clears throat> the real mystery is why I'm only learning this now. Canva.com. Designed for work. From Cafe, welcome to Stay Tuned. I'm Preet Bharara. So Volume 1 is about the Russian attack on the United States. And what struck me about Volume 1 was that Bob Mueller and his investigators came to exactly the same conclusions that the intelligence community did in the fall of 2016. That the Russians were attacking us with the intent of creating chaos, undermining our democracy, damaging Hillary Clinton should she become president, and trying to help Donald Trump become president. Bob Mueller came to exactly those conclusions. I think that's extraordinarily important. That's Michael Morell. His career at the CIA spanned 33 years and included stints as the president's daily briefer, acting director, and deputy director. If there's someone who knows the ins and outs of an agency that is shrouded in secrecy, it's Michael Morell. He's now what some people call an enemy of the people, by which I mean a journalist. We discussed how the CIA operates, why WikiLeaks is not a journalistic organization, what Mueller's testimony meant for Volume 1 folks like Morell, and CIA gadgets you won't believe. But first, let's get to your questions. That's coming up. Stay tuned. Intelligence Matters with Michael Morell is a weekly national security-focused podcast and radio program. Top current and former senior government officials provide insight into their careers, the critical roles they've played in shaping U.S. policies, and their views on the key national security issues. Former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morell, helps decode key priorities and offers his perspective on how officials work to achieve national security objectives. Intelligence Matters is a production of CBS News. New episodes are released every Wednesday. I taped an interview with Michael Morell right after recording our own Stay Tuned episode, so you can hear that now wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, Preet. This is Neha from Boston. Um, I love your show. I have two questions for you. The first is, I've been listening to your interviews of the Democratic presidential candidates, and I was wondering if they get your questions released to them ahead of time or if their answers are off the cuff. My second question is, I was reading last week about El Chapo's sentencing and how the trial ended up happening in the Eastern District of New York. Can you tell us a little bit about how a national case like that ends up in a specific jurisdiction and in general when, how these large cases end up at a specific prosecutor's office? Thanks so much. I'll keep listening. Thanks for both your questions. Uh, with respect to your first question, no, I do not share questions in advance with the presidential candidates. They answered on the fly, although presumably they're prepared for the kinds of questions that I was asking. Second, El Chapo, that's an interesting and in some ways uh, touchy subject. Someone who's such a monster, gargantuan criminal operating for so many years and who had an effect 
on the lives of so many people in so many different jurisdictions in the United States, you might imagine, unlike a lot of other cases, many U.S. attorney's offices had an interest in pursuing El Chapo. Many U.S. attorney's offices actually indicted El Chapo. One of those districts was the Southern District of New York, also the Northern District of Illinois, also the Eastern District of New York, and a few others. And so unlike the usual case where it's very clear where something should be prosecuted, in an instance like that, when El Chapo was brought into custody, there is what is called a turf battle. And in that circumstance, the various offices and their representatives, which would be the U.S. attorneys, have a meeting to try to resolve it, and it is ultimately resolved by the attorney general. And for various reasons, given the nature of the evidence that the Eastern District had, the length of time they had been doing the investigation, the decision was made that the case should be tried in the Eastern District of New York. So that's why he was there. This question comes in a tweet from user John Fitzpatrick. It's a pretty provocative question. He asks, if the president were to strangle Jared in the Oval Office, could he not be charged according to the OLC opinion? Hashtag Aspreet. So I get why you're asking such a dramatic question, because there remains a lot of confusion and concern uh, and apprehension about this Office of Legal Counsel opinion that says a sitting president cannot be indicted, period. Now, I've often said that a U.S. attorney would always abide by that, a special counsel would always abide by that, because that's the policy of the Justice Department. You can have a view that it should be changed, and I think the next president should undertake a review of that opinion and perhaps have it changed. But when you point out a dramatic example like this, I've always carved out, in my discussions of the OLC opinion, I've always carved out a circumstance like this. So if you're talking about obstruction of a certain significance, or you're talking about a certain kind of campaign finance violation, I think without question, again, whether you like it or not, the OLC opinion governs. And because you want to have the authoritativeness to back up a decision you make to charge a sitting president, you want to be in the majority view. And it's hard to do that if an OLC opinion says you can't do it. On the other hand, it's interesting to consider a hypothetical. And I'm going to take it out of the realm of his son-in-law. But imagine you have a president, not just Donald Trump, but any president about whom you have absolutely incontrovertible proof on video of something like a homicide in the Oval Office, or for that matter, on Fifth Avenue. Query whether or not the Justice Department or any of its components would blithely walk away from such a case in light of the OLC opinion. The other thing that obviously is true, if you had a case like that, where you're talking hypothetically about a serious violent crime, notwithstanding that opinion, I think there would be no doubt, although our views of this have been tested of late, I think there would be no doubt that you would get immediate action in Congress. You would also like to think that in the country, even though we're sort of beaten down a bit on the rule of law, that a president about whom there was such obvious and clear evidence would at a minimum immediately leave office, which would then allow that person to be prosecuted for that crime. But the hypothetical is an interesting thing to think about. And I have not heard great answers from people who stand for the proposition that in all circumstances, no matter what, no matter how serious the crime, no matter how violent, no matter how much clear evidence, no matter how obvious it is to every person in the public that such a crime had been committed, would the OLC opinion stand? I know that sounds contradictory, but I think in the real world, it would play out in a different way from how we're seeing the obstruction play out. This question comes from Twitter user Charlie Newton, who asks, why is grand jury material so super double secret? I get the need for confidentiality, especially since someone might never be charged, but why so serious? Meant to protect witnesses or targets? Who will win the battle to release Mueller's grand jury stuff? Hashtag Aspreet. Well, I think it's all of those reasons. The idea of a criminal investigation, unlike some you've seen that are done by Congress, is that to the fullest extent possible, you want those investigative steps and the fruits of those investigative steps to remain secret. Some of it is not able to be kept secret because you go and you interview someone, an FBI agent interviews someone, and that person can go and tell other folks. That person will have a defense lawyer. The defense lawyer can go and tell people about the interview, can even go to the press. A central reason for grand jury secrecy 
is not only the protection of people who might not ultimately be charged and aspersions be cast upon them and, and a cloud hang over them, but also so that witnesses who are coming into the grand jury can feel comfortable giving their full and fair recollections of events without fear that it will immediately become public. Now, obviously, at the end of the day, if there's a charge, those people can become witnesses at trial and grand jury information becomes public because there's a charge. But you don't want that happening during the pendency of an investigation. You also don't want grand jury information during the pendency of an investigation coming out so that other witnesses are able to tailor their testimony and know what other folks have said so they can change their stories to fit what their own defense or alibi might be. So it's protection of the innocent. It's to make sure that there's full and candid testimony from witnesses. It's to protect those witnesses. It's to make sure the integrity of the process is preserved. And even in the case when an investigation is over and certain charges have or have not been brought, there's a really, really serious consideration uh, legally and pragmatically not to willy-nilly just release grand jury material because sometimes that information is embarrassing to people. And so there's a pretty strong prohibition that without really important cause, use in another proceeding that's official, that people don't have to worry that their secret grand jury material is going to be splashed on the front pages of newspapers. Who will win the battle to release Mueller's grand jury stuff? I think at the end of the day, the House will. There's a legal question and a reasonable one about whether or not the grand jury material can be released to the committee in the absence of a formal declaration of an impeachment inquiry. I think it's clear once they declare an actual impeachment inquiry that their legal argument for obtaining the grand jury information is quite a bit stronger. I think there's a decent argument that it's strong already because they're engaging in investigative steps and hearings preliminary to an impeachment hearing, which should be sufficient according to some people's view of the law. But one way or another, I think they will get it. This question comes in an email from Brian in Denver. Pre, question for you. Who are all the straight-laced people behind anyone who testifies in front of Congress? They never smile and just look stone-faced. Just curious. Thanks. P.S. Love the show. I'm glad you say they look stone-faced and not stoned, which every once in a while, one of them does. So those are the committee staff. When I worked in the Senate, as I've mentioned before, for four and a half years for Senator Schumer, if you tuned into C-SPAN 2 on certain occasions when there was a Judiciary Committee hearing going on or an investigative hearing going on, an oversight hearing, there sitting behind Senator Schumer was a much younger, fresh-faced and stone-faced me. (laughs) Uh, Those are the folks who have done a lot of the hard work behind the scenes, sometimes of interviewing witnesses preliminarily, of putting together memos and briefing books for the members for whom they work, often, if not always, drafting the questions that you hear members asking, passing them notes when they have questions. So those are good public servants who don't get a lot of attention, whose names are not known to folks. So they don't smile because they're supposed to remain poker-faced. And if poker face looks like stone-faced, then so be it. That's the mark of a good staffer. This question comes from Twitter user TurnLeft. Ah, wonder what your ideological persuasion is. <laughs> TurnLeft cites to an article from ABC, which reads as follows. Trump's pick for intelligence director, that's John Ratcliffe, misrepresented his role in a major anti-terrorism financing case, which he has repeatedly described as among his key national security credentials. TurnLeft asks, so is this a big deal or not a big deal? Thoughts on Ratcliffe being named to DNI would be great. Love the show. So Ann Milgram and I discussed it a little bit on the Cafe Insider podcast this last Monday. I imagine we'll be discussing it at greater length next Monday on the Cafe Insider podcast. So a couple of thoughts. John Ratcliffe has had some kinds of experience that are relevant. He's been on both the Judiciary Committee and the Intelligence Committee in the House. He was nominally, at least, a national security prosecutor in one of the Texas U.S. Attorney's offices. And then for a brief period of time, I think he was the interim United States attorney. Unlike many other positions in the government that don't specify particular kinds of expertise, the statute that relates to the Director of National Intelligence contains a specific 
expertise requirement, although it's a little bit vague, and it reads as follows, quote, any individual nominated for appointment as director of national intelligence shall have extensive national security expertise, close quote. There are other statutes, for example, that relate to the appointment of United States Marshals that specify a particular length of time that someone shall have had some kind of management expertise or law enforcement experience or expertise. This statute merely says extensive national security expertise. So I imagine there's going to be a big fight about whether or not John Radcliffe has such extensive national security expertise. And one of the reasons why, as you point out, that might be a problem for Mr. Radcliffe is that he looks like he has padded somewhat considerably his national security credentials. Now, among other things, he appears to have stated, and still, I think, to this day, states on his website that he was responsible for the arrest of 300, quote-unquote, illegal aliens, which seems not to be true. And I think this also may remain on his website. He also seems to have asserted that he oversaw the prosecution and jailing of terrorists. Doesn't seem to be true. And the reason for that discrepancy appears to be that he had some involvement in a peripheral or preliminary way with respect to a terrorism financing case called the Holy Land case, uh, but was not responsible for overseeing any cases brought. Matt Miller, who was one of the former spokespersons for Attorney General Eric Holder, has been posting on social media uh, his analysis. Based on Matt Miller's and, and other press outlets' reviews of cases brought by the Eastern District of Texas, which is where John Ratcliffe served, they actually didn't seem to have brought any terrorism cases. Now, that's not that surprising. The Eastern District of Texas is not, say, the Southern District of New York, where you know, we obviously had a lot more plots to deal with. We had a lot more operational terrorists, not just during the time I was the U.S. attorney, but before me and since I have been there. So we have a big, robust terrorism unit on the ninth floor of the office, in which I served myself when I was a line prosecutor, and lots and lots of terrorism cases, material support of terrorism cases against Al-Qaeda, Al-Shabaab, and other terrorist groups are brought on a regular basis because there's a lot of activity in New York City, as you might imagine, less so in the Eastern District of Texas. And so some people have come to John Ratcliffe's defense by saying, look, he was the chief of national security in that office, and a lot of the work that happens is behind the scenes and doesn't result in charges, and it's still national security work. And that is absolutely true. I would often say when people ask me, you know, what are you proud of in your office and what are some things that people don't know about? I would say that the men and women on the ninth floor in my office, even though you see some terrorism cases that they bring, they are on a regular basis pulling all-nighters, trying to chase down a threat or figure out the movements of somebody who might be coming across the border from Canada or coming across a bridge into the city. And those things don't end up resulting in charges, either for intelligence reasons or because they don't pan out or because they're hoaxes. But lots and lots of national security work and anti-terrorism work that goes on in U.S. attorney's offices and with the FBI happens behind the scenes, and you will never see something in a court docket showing what good and hard work those people are doing. That is totally true. On the other hand, you can't go around saying that you're responsible for convicting actual terrorists, and you can't go around saying that you've been involved in certain terrorism cases when you haven't been. So we'll see how that plays out for him. I will note also that the chair of the Intelligence Committee in the Senate that will be vetting and processing John Ratcliffe's nomination, if it ever actually gets formally sent to the Senate, Senator Burr, did not sound overly exuberant about John Ratcliffe. To hear the fuller conversation about this issue, go to cafe.com slash insider. My guest this week is Michael Morell, former acting and deputy director of the Central Intelligence Agency and host of the show, Intelligence Matters. It's not an overstatement to say Michael has seen it all. He was with President Bush when the World Trade Center was attacked on September 11th, and he was with President Obama during the covert operation that brought Osama bin Laden to justice. We discuss how the CIA recruits spies, 
what's on their business cards, why public distrust of the intelligence community can act as a form of oversight, and who in Washington leaks intel secrets the most. That's coming up. Stay tuned. Did you know that only one in five homes have a home security system? Maybe because most companies make it difficult. That's why Simply Safe is my top choice, hands down. Simply Safe protects every door, window, and room with 24-7 professional monitoring. There's no contract, hidden fees, or fine print. Prices are fair and honest. Around-the-clock monitoring is just $15 a month. What really makes Simply Safe stand out is their video verification technology. With Simply Safe video verification, the security system doesn't cry wolf. They're able to visually confirm that a break-in is happening, allowing police to get to the scene 3.5 times faster. Visit simplysafe.com/preet to get free shipping and a 60-day risk-free trial. You've got nothing to lose. Be sure to go to simplysafe.com/preet so they know our show sent you. That's simplysafe.com/preet. Quartz was founded in 2012 to serve a new kind of business leader with creative and intelligent journalism built for users first. More than 230 people around the world collaborate to bring a global perspective with a presence in New York, LA, London, Nairobi, New Delhi, Hong Kong, and San Francisco. With a Quartz membership, you'll be part of a community for a new generation of global business leaders. Enjoy thought-provoking discussions with respected people in business and a direct relationship with journalists, their insights, and their obsessions. Dial into the newsroom for conference calls, ask questions, and get invited to events, all without paywalls. Quartz recently reported on William Barr's pre-confirmation spike in donations to Senate Republicans. Spoiler, it's over $50,000. For stay tuned listeners, Quartz is offering 25% off your first year of membership. Just go to qz.com, click become a member, and enter my code PREET at checkout. That's qz.com, click become a member, and enter code PREET for 25% off your first year of membership. QZ.com, click become a member, enter code PREET. Mike Morell, thanks for being on the show. It's great to be with you, Preet. So, I gotta ask you a question. You and I have both been involved in some transition. You were a member of the intelligence community, for a very long time, and now you're kind of a journalist. What does it feel like to have gone from being on the front lines of protecting America to becoming the enemy of the people? So actually, um, <laughs> it's a great- You're allowed a, to laugh. It's a great question. I meant that in jest. Yeah, no, but it's a great question. So actually, the two professions are similar. Both of them search for the truth. Both of them rely on sources to find that truth. Both of them protect those sources. So they're actually very similar. Um, When I started working for CBS News as an on-air commentator, I saw my role in a similar way to my role when I was deputy director. And in that job, my job was to help the president understand what was happening in the world and how to think about it. And I saw my job um, as an on-air commentator for CBS, helping the American people do that. That was a parallel. And now as a podcaster, there's another parallel, which is that before I used to go to the White House for deputies meetings, principals meetings, I would get really smart people in the room who knew the issues and I would ask them a thousand questions. And now that's what doing a podcast feels like to me. 
Right. <laughs> Why the CIA? Did you watch movies about spies when you were young? No. Um, actually, I ended up there almost on a fluke. So I majored in economics as an undergraduate, and I fell in love with it. I thought it not only explained how the economy worked, I thought it explained human behavior as well. And I wanted to go to grad school, get a PhD, and teach at the university level. That's what I wanted to do. And I had a professor who I think worked for the CIA, did some work for the CIA. Um, I never could find that out. He, he died pretty early in life. Meaning you suspected that I suspected. he had an alternate life. He might have done some research for CIA. Was know, it, nothing spooky, right. but just was research. It, was it the kind of scarf he was wearing? What was it? What was, what, <laughs> no, what, it was more the have... kind. It was more the, the research he was doing in international economics. But he encouraged me to apply to the agency. He said, you know, they hire a lot of folks with economic degrees. So I did, and I was invited to Washington. And here I am, this middle-class to lower-middle-class kid from Akron, Ohio, who had never been to Washington. And here the CIA is inviting me. And so I go, not to take the job, but to see our nation's capital on the taxpayer's dime. (laughs) So I go for two days of interviews, and I talk to 10 people. And in those two days, I am blown away by the mission of the place, which is to protect America. I am blown away by the quality of the people that I met, and I'm blown away by the capabilities of the organization. And they say to me, Preet, they say to me, you know this grad school thing you want to do that you keep talking about in all these interviews? We'll take care of that. <laughs> right. You come work here, and we'll pay for that. We'll send you back to school full-time down the road, which they did. Um, and so I said yes and never looked back. What's the coolest part of being in the CIA for you? I can't tell you that. <laughs> oh, yes, you can. I've heard you say it. So obviously there's a lot of cool stuff that we can't talk about, most of it being spy gear, you know, James Bond kind of spy gear. That's cool. You can tell us about one, tell us about one gadget. Um, gosh, I don't know a, a, a gadget that's not classified. Let me, let me think about it as we talk here. Maybe we'll come back. Can I ask you this? Yeah. If the public were to find out the nature and capabilities of some of these gadgets, would they be blown away or would they be like, oh... I've seen that in Bond films. They'd be blown away. They would. They'd be blown away. Okay. Well, you can tell me after. Um, But I think, you know, when I was deputy director, I traveled a lot overseas. Probably once every six weeks, I would travel for a week and visit our stations overseas and visit our foreign counterparts. And one of the things that I did when I went to every CIA station is I would take the first tour operations officers So this was their first experience overseas. And I would get them in a conference room and I'd put them around a table and I'd just say, tell me about, tell me about the cases you're working. Tell me about the assets you're running. Tell me about the people who are on the road to recruitment. Tell me what's working, what's not. So we're clear for lay people, because it sounds like a very cool phrase, assets you're running. You're not talking about stocks and bonds. No, we're talking about spies. Human Human beings, human beings who are acting as spies. Who are acting as spies. For the United States. They're working for the United States of America. But who are not Americans. But who are not Americans. So they may be um, an official in a foreign government. They may be inside of a terrorist group. They may be inside of a drug trafficking organization. These are people who work clandestinely for us to give us information to keep us safe. So the recruiting process is very important. What can you say to us in the public forum like this? about how recruits are targeted and then how they are actually brought into the fold? It's a great question, and it starts with what information do we not have that we need? It could be something about the North Korean nuclear program or the Iranian ballistic missile program or what have you, some piece of information that we need in order to understand the threats to the United States. 
So what do we need? Where is that information? Right? In what entity does that organization lie? What specific office? Who works in that office? Um, what do we know about those people? Do they travel? Where do they travel? Right? So it's identifying specific people who you then look for opportunities to meet, to get to know, to assess what their vulnerabilities are. And vulnerabilities is a funny word here. Right. Because we don't, unlike some of our foreign counterparts, we don't use negative inducements you don't to get people to spy. We do not blackmail. Because ultimately, you don't have control over those people when you do that. So you're looking for people who may be disaffected? We're looking for people who may believe in the United States and what we stand for. You know, freedom and democracy and human dignity. Um, people who may believe that their government is not headed in the right direction and they want to change that in some way. People who believe that maybe the relationship between their government and our government need to be better. Um, people who have a financial motive. People who maybe want their kids to go to school in the United States. So financial motive, meaning the CIA will pay. CIA pays its assets. How much do they pay their assets? It depends on the quality of the information. What's like a high-end payment for an asset? In the millions. In the millions. See, my parallel experience when I became U.S. attorney, and before that I knew, but I didn't fully know because I had to sign off on certain things, the amount of money paid to a high-end confidential informant. We used to joke that when I leave the U.S. attorney's office, I'm going to become a CI. (laughs) (laughs) So it's a lot more money than podcasting. (laughs) Well, it depends on the information you have, right? Run-of-the-mill information is a lot lower. Have you, in your career, personally recruited assets? No, but I always wanted to, right? So I grew up on the analytics side um, of the agency. And I spent a lot of time, obviously, with operators and ultimately overseeing operations and approving them. But I never did it myself. There was a couple of people I knew later in my career who I thought were recruitable, who I knew. And I said, hey, can I recruit (laughs) them? And the answer was absolutely not, no way, no how. So let's say you identify somebody who has information about North Korean nuclear program or some other thing, that person is not approached right away. I mean, it's sort of a little bit like flipping a witness in the criminal context. Is it a weeks-long process? Is it a months-long process? Can it be a years-long process? Months to years. Years-long. So months long horizon. Years, right, and when you are ready to make the pitch, when you're ready to ask yeah. this person to spy for the United States of America, you're 99.9% certain the person's going to say yes because you've done so much work up to that point. You've done work persuasively in some ways or just figuring out who they are? I mean, it seems odd to me that you would be that close to certain if no one has made any kind of pitch yet. Um, They might have actually shared some information. They might have gone over the line already, right? But no, you've spent all this time getting to know them, understanding them, understanding um, why they do what they do and what their mindset is and, again, what their vulnerabilities might be, um, why they might want to work for us. You know pretty well, and and you've got all your approvals from headquarters, right? This is not something you can do totally on your own. How many levels of approval for one asset? It depends. It depends, again, on on what you're talking about. Um, But at minimum, at minimum, a couple levels back at headquarters. I'm going to keep asking you questions that you might not be able to answer, but you can tell me you can't answer them. At any given time, how many assets would the agency have? That I can't answer. Is it in the thousands? Is it in the hundreds? It's in the thousands. It's in the thousands. Yeah. And are they all kept track of in one system? No. Because that would be dangerous. That's dangerous. In fact, CIA has, you know, cyber's a huge threat, as yeah. you know. And obviously we have an air-gapped system, right? Top secret system. But we don't even keep everything on that system. Yeah. Our most sensitive secrets are kept in paper inside of a vault right? Um, that only a few people have access to. Now, are there some things 
you know, you were the acting director of the CAA and, and deputy director. So you're at the very top. Are there some things that are kept even from that person? Sure. So uh, the vast majority of people in the organization, including those at the top, don't know who the assets are. That's like sources in journalism that maybe even the editor-in-chief of the paper does not know. Correct. And that's for the protection of whom? The source. So when somebody, this is, this is really interesting and important, I think. When somebody says, yes, I'm willing to work for the Central Intelligence Agency, I'm willing to work for the United States of America, we make a commitment to them to keep them safe because they're putting their life at risk in many cases. Um, but you don't get a guarantee. There's no guarantees, right. right? There's no guarantees. But we make a commitment to keep them safe. And that is of the highest priority right after them giving you the information that, that you think you need to keep us safe. And we take that really, really seriously. And how do you make sure that, because this happens in other contexts too, when you know, a cooperating witness goes south uh, in a criminal case, how much monitoring is there of an asset to make sure they're not doing the double cross? There's an entire job category at CIA. So you have your operations officers that do the recruitment and run the assets, right? Meet with them, ask them the questions, get the answer, give them whatever it is that you've agreed to give them, right? That person runs the asset. There's another job category called case management officer, and it's their job to assess the reliability of the person. Are they, are they being honest with you? Are they telling you everything they know? Are they holding some stuff back? And not only the reliability of the individual over time, but the credibility of the specific information they're giving you. Reliability helps determine credibility, but it's not, it's not 100% because people acquire information in different ways, right? So when somebody tells you something, you make them tell you how you got that. Looking at a document in a high-level office has a lot more credibility than hearing it from a person who heard it from a person who heard it from a person. Right. So those case management officers are very, very important in making sure that whoever's reading that intelligence understands both the reliability of the person over time and the credibility of that specific information. Does every asset have to go through certain hoops, like a polygraph test? or does So it they depend? all go through a vetting process. Not all of them are polygraphed, but many of them are. So you said that there's one thing that Americans won't do in recruitment of assets, and that is use blackmail derogatory information. Are there other things that we won't do? In other words, are there certain kinds of people we would say are off limits if someone has killed somebody or someone has done some other kind of thing? I mean, is there something that's off limits? Yeah, I'd give you two answers to that. One is there are regulations about who you can use as an asset and who you can't. There are regulations about what you can use as your cover as you're talking to these people and what you can't. We don't use reporters as cover because that would undermine all journalists, right? If people believed that CIA officers were pretending to be journalists. So there's a whole set of rules around those two issues. And then there's common sense and ethics that come into day-to-day decisions of people walking in the deputy director's office or the acting director's office and saying, hey, we want to do this, this, and this. And you say, God, I, you know, I really don't feel so comfortable about that. Even though we're allowed to do it, right. I don't feel so comfortable about it. So we're not going to do it that way. So an asset goes bad, or you find stops being truthful, what happens to the asset? Um, they you, sleep with the fishes? No. Okay. <laughs> no, All right. I just want to get that, that off the table. Okay. We don't do that either. So you say, Mr. Some Morrell. of our competitors do that. Yes. We do not do competitors, that. Competitors, good word. You know, we'll, we'll fire that person, essentially. 
right? We don't have a relationship with them What happens to that person? Is that sometimes of grave personal danger to that person? Will it be more likely for it to be learned that that person had been a U.S. asset or not? No, I mean, we're not going to rat them out, right? We're not going to do that. And we still want them to live in a way where they can protect what they've done. I don't remember ever having a case like this, but it occurs to me as we're talking about it, could any of those people be prosecuted? Have they broken the law? And I'm guessing you don't want that because then it undermines... So they've broken the law in their own country from day one. Yeah. Right? Yeah. They haven't broken any U.S. laws. No U.S. law if they're operating abroad. Right. Really important for people to understand that CIA can break the law of other countries. Yeah. But we cannot break our own. Right. I don't know if everybody understands that. That the United States government, through the agency, not just the agency, but other law enforcement agencies, because I know this from my time, can direct illegal conduct in other countries. Yes. Is that okay? Yes. Otherwise, we couldn't. We would not be able to get the information we need to do our jobs. Now, at the end of the day, that's that's an ethical decision, right? Right. But every president has said, yes, I'm willing to do that. What's the approval process for conducting unlawful activity in another country? Who Who has to say yes to that? It depends, right? It depends on what the activity is. Just simply to recruit another human being to spy for us, that approval is fairly low inside CIA. For a covert action, right, for a CIA covert action, that is approved by the president in writing and gets briefed to Congress within 24 to 48 hours. Every covert action? Every covert action. How many covert actions are happening at any given time? A number. A number. It's not large. Right. um, Otherwise, it would be be inundating a president. Yes. And a covert action, right, is different from intelligence. So what CIA does every day is collect intelligence, largely through human beings, but sometimes through technical means, and it does analysis of that information to put it in context for the president and his or her national security team. The other thing the CIA does is covert action, which is undertaking specific activities as authorized by the president to actually change an outcome overseas, to degrade a terrorist group, to stop drugs flowing from into the United States, pursuing a certain foreign policy, right? There's, there's an, a specific objective on a piece of paper that right. the president says, I want to further this policy objective, and I'm giving the CIA the authority to do these activities. That's a covert action. Right. Now, so you have an asset in a country who's breaking the law of that country, as is always the case, and that asset gets arrested by the local police in the other country. How do you fix that? Because you see in the movies what happens, but in real life, how do you fix that, if you can? It's very hard. It's very hard. It's very hard. And does the asset understand, and is it the policy, that you don't do anything to out it to protect that person from prison? Yes. And they understand. You do whatever you can to protect that person, but they also understand the risks they're undertaking. It's not like you hide the risks from them. But do you then worry that that person, to save his own skin, will reveal that he is an asset? Maybe. And does that happen from time to time? Sure. And there's nothing to do about that? Nothing to do about that. It's part of the cost of doing business. And is there a distinction made between unlawful activities conducted in other countries between uh, countries that are hostile to us versus countries that are, are close allies? So I don't think so. Yeah. Remember there was that incident some years ago where it became known, the reporting was, I can't remember if it's confirmed or not, the reporting was President Obama would have real-time information about things that Angela Merkel was either doing with her phone or otherwise. I can't remember. That's just reported. I don't know if that was confirmed or not. But that surprised a lot of people that with friendly countries, we're doing that kind of thing. What do you say to people who are surprised by that? Um, So I'm not going to confirm or deny that particular case, right? And I'm not going to confirm or deny that we spy on any particular country or not. Um, 
But let me ask you this. If you were the president. I don't have a problem um, with it. <laughs> and I'm asking your listeners yeah, at the end yeah, of the day, yeah. right? If you were the president and an ally of the United States was having conversations with, say, the supreme leader um, of Iran and then was lying to you about what was said in those conversations, wouldn't you want to know about it? Sure. But to make the decision, I, of course. But the interesting presumption there is that allies of yours might engage in that kind of conduct that would be disappointing such that you have to have in place a policy practice and capability of making sure that that's not happening. You're a little bit presuming something once you get to the to the hypothetical of the lie, right? Yeah, and there there are those countries where you don't spy on each other. So the the five eyes, right? The United Kingdom, Canada, the US, New Zealand, Australia. Why New um, Zealand? Um <laughs> No offense to New Zealand. No offense to New Zealand. I love New Zealand. Uh, I've, I've never I been there. I love New Zealand too. They don't have the largest intelligence. But I remember when, you know, when but, I was younger and you hear about the five eyes, you're thinking NATO powers. You're not thinking necessarily New Zealand. Yeah, New Zealand, you know, um, it's obviously not a world power. I'm going to get a lot of angry mail from- We love from, New Zealand. From New Zealand. But they're part of this group. And what does it take to be in this group, right? It takes common interests, common national security interests, it takes policymakers who share what they're thinking with policymakers and not holding back and not hiding. It takes intelligence services who are sharing information and not hiding. Intelligence services who actually work with each other to pursue the information we're looking for. So it really takes a special set of circumstances to get to the point where you say, hey, we're not going to spy on you. You're not going to spy on us. By the way, this is a bit of nomenclature that I know rankles some people. Is it a CIA officer or a CIA agent? It's a CIA. So if you're an American and you work for CIA, you are a CIA officer. Right. People should get that straight. If you are a foreign national and you are working clandestinely for the CIA, you are an agent. What, if anything, can the CIA do on American soil? Whatever we do on American soil, we'll work very closely with the FBI and coordinate. Okay? So it's not the case, just so people are clear, it's not the case that the CIA can do nothing on American soil. Foreign nationals come into the United States, right? Yeah. For all sorts of reasons. And we can look at those people, reach out to those people. We just make sure we do it in coordination with the Bureau. Always with the Bureau. Mm -hmm. And who has to approve those things? Again, it's done at a, at a fairly low level. The CIA has gotten in trouble. The intelligence communities for getting things wrong. Also, from time to time in our history, for maybe overreaching. And then the laws change and controls get changed. As we sit here today, explain how people or why people should be comfortable with oversight of the agency. We did stuff that was, you know, we had to do secret stuff in law enforcement with the Bureau. The agency is one order, multiple orders higher by its nature of necessity, as you know, and I've heard you say and others say, to keep us safe, you have to do a lot of things in secret. Who else gets to know about it outside of the executive branch? How can we trust that everything is under control? It's a great question. Um, and part of the answer is, and this is going to sound strange coming from me, is I don't want blind trust by the American people in the intelligence community. I think it's healthy that the American people have some degree of mistrust. There's a long history in our country, unfortunately, of the government abusing power. And so I think it's actually healthy in a democracy for there to be some mistrust. And without some degree of mistrust, we wouldn't have the oversight that is in place to make sure that we live up to the law and our values. 
So what does that oversight look like? There's a significant amount of oversight in the executive branch, significant amount of oversight by the White House in CIA activities and operations, significant amount of oversight by the Department of Justice, by the National Security Division, significant amount of oversight by the State Department to make sure that what we're doing is consistent with the foreign policy right. goals of the United that's States. That's all within the executive branch. That's so, all within so the executive far. branch, right. right? Then you have oversight of CIA operations, or some of them, by the Congress. Yes. To whom and in what circumstances do members of Congress find out about and are asked for their blessings with respect to CIA operations, if any? So they're not asked for their blessing. It's just notification. It's notification. In no circumstance is Congress asked for its blessing. The reason I ask that question is because I've heard people say, when you talk about covert programs or other things that the right. CIA does, the arguments made later when they become known and some people don't like them, even though it's just a notification to members of Congress, people like to say, well, they didn't object, they gave it their blessing. But it's not the case that their permission was sought, right? So you do seek their permission in one sense. The law says you have to notify. And you have to do that fully and concurrently. So you can't wait six months or a year to Concurrent notify with them. the taking of the action. Yes. But does that mean, you know, a week before you're going to do a big thing or as, you know, a drone is in the air, you let them know that it's happening? Um, it depends on what, again, what you're doing, right? Um, but currently usually means in the immediate aftermath, not before, except when it comes to establishing a covert action. So once the president signs a finding that says, I'm creating this covert action, I'm asking the CIA to undertake these activities, um, by law, we have hours to notify the two intelligence committees, the Senate Intelligence Committee and the House Intelligence Committee. But only the chairs? No, no. The whole committee... Gets advised that... Gets advised that the president has asked CIA to undertake this covert action. Okay. Right? That's notification. Sometimes that notification is limited to the chair and ranking of those committees. But when that happens, the rest of the committee has to be told hey, the chairman and ranking have been told something that you haven't been told. Right. <laughs> that's that's right. a fairly recent reform. So do they say the chairman and ranking member have been told that Project 614, about which we can tell you nothing, is happening, or do they get any detail at all? Do, are they told, well, this has something to do with Iran? They get a lot of detail. They do. The, they the get, rest of the committee. They get a lot of detail. And my view is that the limitation to the chair and ranking should happen rarely. That the more people you brief the better. Aren't you worried right? about in terms leaks? Of oversight. So, so it's very interesting. They leak in, this in town. the Congress, you know. Actually, you know, in my experience in this town, many more leaks out of the executive branch than out of Congress. Yeah. Uh, well, on intelligence matters. On intelligence matters. Absolutely. So I never worried about that. Now, let's go back to the question of notification or approval. So at the end of the day, Congress has the power of the purse. Congress has the power to say, you can't spend money on that. This thing you want to do in Honduras, we're going to take that power away from you. We are not going to let you spend money on that. Right. And so they do have that power. So on a covert action, they can say no. Now it takes both the authorizers, the intelligence committees and the appropriators, the defense subcommittee of right. the appropriations but, but the appro committee. Are the appropriators allowed to know that? Yes. So they know that too. For this purpose. For this purpose. For this purpose. So to be clear, on each of the things that requires the president of the United States to sign off on covert action, with respect to all of those things, there's also some notification to Congress, those committees, or only some subset of those things? All of those things. So they have equal access right. in some measure. 
and and they get regular updates on exactly what you're doing and where and what the effects are. How regular? Once a month, usually. How often, and you've done some of these briefings? Many times. To the Congress? Many times. How annoying is it's that? One thing I do not miss. Be honest. Um, or is, can it be, is it a wonderful experience? Is it frustrating? Is it annoying? Is it edifying? A, it is, I'll say two things about it. One that will um, not surprise people and one that might. It's terribly, terribly, terribly annoying, frustrating, and even dangerous when it becomes political when politics is allowed inside the room. The other thing I'd say is that in my experience, and if I was going to reform the intelligence oversight process, I would focus on this. Most of the interest of the members of the intelligence committees is what does CIA think analytically about the North Korean nuclear program or the Iranian nuclear program or what are the Iranians up to right now in, in the Persian Gulf. They want to know what we think because it makes them smarter among their colleagues. There's a reason why chairman and ranking members are on the Sunday show so often. Yeah. Because they know more than other people. So I've had many, 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 many more experiences with Congress just talking about what's going on in the world than I have with them asking, hey, how are you guys doing on recruiting assets against this target? Or how good are you guys at making analytic calls? Yeah. Right, so there's less interest in in what we're doing as an agency, and much more interest in the issues of the day. So, if someone on one of these committees that's getting notified really doesn't like it, what happens? Short of an appropriations removal, there's nothing else they can do, right? They can write a letter to the president, or sometimes they write a note to file the DNI to the director of the agency and say, "I think this is inappropriate for the following reasons." They can, they can do that and they can say, and we're, we're going to withhold funding because we feel so strongly about it. That's really all they can do. How right? often does that happen? Um, that happens occasionally um, to rarely, mm -hmm. occasionally to rarely. And on covert action, look, covert action is a policy decision. It's not an intelligence decision. So the president has made a decision. His, his or her national security team have made a decision. So oftentimes when Congress is unhappy with a particular covert action, it's the Secretary of State or the Secretary of Defense who's going up with a right. director or a deputy director of CIA to make the case for the covert action because it's a policy decision. So you spend a good amount of your time at the agency being a professional briefer, which is important stuff, including the briefing of the President of the United States. Mm -hmm. For a whole year. Including doing the briefing for the presidential daily brief, yes. as they call it. Yes. I want to ask about that in a minute but many of my listeners will not know this. What were you doing on the morning of September 11th, 2001? So I was with the president of the United States. So I was his briefer. And you were in a school in Saratoga, Florida. From January 4th, 2001 to January 4th, 2002, I was his daily briefer, six days a week, no matter where he was in the world. On that morning of September 11th, I briefed him in his hotel suite in Sarasota from 8 to 8.30. Um, and then I went with a motorcade. Right. The first plane hit. Sometime after 8.30. Sometime after 8.30, the first transponder went off at, I think, at 8.15. Right. So you're in yeah. the school, in the classroom, and we've all seen those images. Yeah. When do you first understand that something has happened? I was in the motorcade going to the school. I was in the senior staff van with Carl Rove and Ari Fleischer and others, and Ari's phone rang. He was the president's press secretary. 
And he turned around and he said to me, Michael, do you know anything about a plane hitting the World Trade Center? And I said, I haven't, but I'll make some calls. That kind of sucks that he had to ask you. Exactly. (laughs) Your your job was to know first, sir. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Okay. We got to the school. I called the CIA Operations Center. And, you know, in my mind, and the president would later tell people he thought the same thing. You know, when somebody said to me, plane hitting the World Trade Center, I thought, small plane, bad weather, et cetera. I called the CIA Operations Center and they didn't know much more than Ari knew, but they did tell me it was a large commercial jet. And boy, that doesn't just happen. No. So I spent the rest of the day with the president. So that, when, once that is found out, what happens to the president? When something of that magnitude happens, I know it's not you, or maybe in consultation with people at the agency, does someone make the decision, we've got to do something to protect the president right now? So after the first plane hit, the president went ahead and went into the classroom. And read from the book. And read from the book. Right. Um, story about a goat, I think. Yeah. And the president went ahead with that. Um, it was only when the second plane hit that there was now no, no doubt at all about what this was, right? And that's when Andy Card went in and whispered in his ear and said, America's under attack. At that point, at that point, I knew there was no doubt what this was. And I was standing there in the classroom next to where the president was, where the rest of the staff, White House staff was. And I was thinking, gosh, this has been on the president's schedule. This place, this moment in time, this event has been on the president's schedule for weeks. When is a plane going to fly into this building? Right, and I could right. tell by the look on the Secret Service guy's face that get, he thought the, the same out. thing. Get yeah. the hell out. And then where did you go? So I went with the president on Air Force One, mm-hmm. um, and I was with him the rest of the day. And on Air Force One, you have the ability to have secure communications with all the people you needed to, to find out what was going on. At, at what moment did you think this was Al-Qaeda? So I thought it was Al-Qaeda from the first moment. The first place we went was Barksdale Air Force Base in Louisiana, and we landed there, and we kicked off the plane, anybody who didn't have anything to do with national security. And we took on a lot of water, and we took on a lot of food because we had no idea how long we'd be flying around. On the flight from Barksdale to Offutt Air Force Base, where the president was going to do a secure video teleconference with his national security team, he asked to see me. And it was me, the president, and Andy Card, And the president looked me in the eye and he said, Michael, who did this? And I had not seen any intelligence yet. And I said, Mr. President, I haven't seen any intelligence that would take us to a perpetrator, so you're going to get my best guess. And he said, I understand the caveat, now get on with it. And I said, Mr. President, there are two nation states, Iran and Iraq, with the capability to do this, but neither one of those has anything to gain, and both of them have everything to lose, so it's not one of them. I said, Mr. President, by the, time we, by the time we get to the end of the trail here, we're going to find Osama bin Laden in Al-Qaeda. And I told him I would bet my kid's future on that. How familiar was Osama bin Laden to the president? He was very familiar. Yeah. From the PDBs? Yes. From the briefings he got prior to becoming president, when he became the Republican candidate for president, he got an intelligence briefing. A big chunk of it was terrorism. A big chunk of that was Al-Qaeda. And then from the PDBs that started as soon as he became president-elect, when the Supreme Court made its famous ruling. He became president-elect, and we started briefing him every day. Right. I mean, the other thing that was happening, so that he wasn't completely unknown, Osama bin Laden was the lead defendant, although he wasn't there, in the trial in my courthouse, yes. Southern District of New York, for the bombing of the American embassies in Kenya and Tanzania. Yes. Which case was brought in 1998. Yes. So he was recently on the minds of civilian yes. people because of that, but not much before that. Yes, and, and... 
in the spring and early summer of 2001, he was on the president's mind almost every day because we had significant intelligence about a coming attack, that it would be potentially catastrophic, that it would be simultaneous attacks, and that it would be a big victory for al-Qaeda. But we didn't have any information whatsoever on, on where, how, or when. And by the end of early summer, the intelligence dried up. We didn't know it at the time, but what was happening was bin Laden in the spring of 2001 was going from training camp to training camp in Afghanistan. And like any leader does, right, rallying his troops. And he was telling people, you know, really good news is coming. You know, great victory for us is coming. And that's what was leaking out. So the president was very, very familiar with with Al-Qaeda um, when I said, Mr. President, this is Al-Qaeda. So you had some intelligence, but you didn't have the specifics necessary to prevent the attack? Correct. In hindsight, now it's been a lot of years and there have been commissions and lots of people have yes. looked at this and you remained at the agency for a long time. Yes. Would you consider it to have been a massive intelligence failure? And if so, how large? So I consider it to have been a national failure um, to include an intelligence failure. You know, um, one of the interesting things is Vice President Gore chaired a commission on aviation safety and there was a chapter in there on aviation security and it worried about terrorists on aircraft and it made a number of recommendations that were not implemented and they weren't implemented because the airline industry um, saw them as too much of a both a financial burden and a burden to passengers almost every one of those recommendations was implemented after 9 11. Um, I don't believe that President Clinton did enough after the embassy bombings um, and after the bombing of the USS Cole in Yemen to, to undermine and degrade al-Qaeda. So this is, this is a national failure, this is a policy failure, and it's an intelligence failure mostly in the following sense. The fundamental responsibility of the intelligence community is to penetrate our adversaries, to learn what they plan to do that's going to hurt us. And after 9-11... We had Al-Qaeda so penetrated that we were able on a large number of occasions to know about an attack that was coming so we could stop it, right? We did not, we CIA and we NSA did not have Al-Qaeda penetrated to the point prior to 9-11 that we saw that attack coming. What's the level of terrorist threat today so as compared to 2001, you it's think? It's very, very different. The, the threat prior to 9-11 was terrorists from outside the United States coming to the United States and attacking us here. All of the changes we made post 9-11 have made that extraordinarily difficult. And it hasn't happened since 9-11. What's changed is now terrorist groups outside the United States are radicalizing individuals inside the United States, some to the point of conducting attacks here. That's the threat. If an American citizen acting alone is becoming radicalized on the internet, and is thinking about engaging in some hostile action against neighbors in Cleveland, Ohio, what role does the CIA, None. if any, have? None. None. Is that bad? I don't think so. The FBI can do that, right, with the right authority. Because everything is contained here. Everything's contained here. Um, I wouldn't want, from a um, civil liberties and privacy perspective, for the CIA to have that authority. There's been a recent event in America that I think you've referred to as a, an intelligence failure, and that is the Russian hacking of the 2016 election, interference thereof. We are recording this the day after the former special counsel, Bob Mueller, testified before two committees. How big an intelligence failure was 
the Russian hacking of the election. So I believe it was significant, but I have to parse this for you, okay? Because I think it's important to parse. The Russians did essentially three different attacks. The first attack was to use cyber espionage to steal information from the DNC, from Hillary Clinton's campaign, and to provide to WikiLeaks embarrassing information that was then disseminated by WikiLeaks and other platforms like WikiLeaks. The intelligence community saw that pretty much in real time and told policymakers about it. The second thing the Russians did was they tried to access the voting systems of state and local governments with, I believe, the intent to play around with those systems if they could get inside. They failed in almost every case to do that, but they tried to do that. The intelligence community saw that in almost real time and warned the policymakers about it. So those are, they did their job. There was a third thing, as you know, that the Russians did, which was to weaponize social media, right? To use our social media to both use true news and fake news, but anything they could to divide us as a people, to create chaos, to hurt Hillary Clinton, and to help Donald Trump. That use of social media, that weaponization of social media began as early as 2012, was significantly up and running by 2013, was full bore by 2014, 2015, and it wasn't until late 2016 and even into 2017 that the intelligence community really got a handle on what was going on. And had we identified it much earlier, say in 2012, 2013, that the Russians were going to conduct this kind of an attack on the United States, had the president known that, he could have had more options than he ended up having in the summer of 2016. The agency gets this information, and as we've discussed, one of the things the agency does is covert action. Another thing they do is analytics. They collect information. There's also something known as a counterintelligence investigation. What is that, and how is that different from the other things that the agency does? So a counterintelligence investigation is when you are conducting investigation, usually into people, but sometimes activities, who you believe are spying on us, who you believe are trying to acquire American secrets, who you believe are trying to inappropriately influence the American government. And these activities that you described relating to the election qualified. Yes, absolutely. And so it was right to open up a counterintelligence investigation. So I don't know whether it was right or not because right. I don't have all the information that was available, but what I read in the media, absolutely right to open up a counterintelligence investigation. And then at what point does a counterintelligence investigation turn into or split off into a criminal investigation by the FBI? Actually, I should ask you that. <laughs> I should ask you that question. So these investigations are largely done by the FBI with the support of the intelligence community. They're not done by the intelligence community themselves. So that's what began this whole business. It ultimately led to the appointment of Bob Mueller, who I know you know well, I know well. We're sitting here just a day after his testimony. What are your one or two takeaways from what happened yesterday? So they're wrapped up in my takeaways from his report. And as you and I have talked in the past, I'm a volume one guy, <laughs> right? Which is the geekiest thing someone can say. Right. I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a volume two you're guy. You're a volume you're, two guy. I'm a volume, volume one, one guy, guy. right? <laughs> um, so volume one is about the Russian attack on the United States. And what struck me 
about Volume 1 was that Bob Mueller and his investigators came to exactly the same conclusions that the intelligence community did in the fall of 2016, that the Russians were attacking us with the intent of creating chaos, undermining our democracy, damaging Hillary Clinton should she become president, and trying to help Donald Trump become president. Bob Mueller came to exactly those conclusions, and he reiterated that yesterday. I think that's extraordinarily important. What else? I think the other thing that struck me yesterday from a volume one perspective is that he made it very clear, and we know this from a variety of of individuals, including the DNI, public testimony, that we are still under attack, that the Russians never stopped, that it continues to this very day, number one, but that the Russians have now been joined by other countries yeah, who want to get, exactly in, on, who who get want, in on the action. Who want to get in on the action. And Bob Mueller said that, and he also said that we need swift action. What would that action be? So I think there's two sets of things that need to be done. So I'm, a, you know, I'm an international relations foreign policy guy, and in international relations and foreign policy, you talk about deterrence, right? How do you deter a foreign adversary from taking action that undermines you? There's always two pieces to it. One is to defend yourself and make it more difficult for the foreign adversary to accomplish what they're trying to accomplish. And to the extent that you can make it more difficult, maybe they'll stop. So there's a whole set of things that we need to do as a nation to protect ourselves from these attacks. And there is bipartisan legislation, and some of this was discussed yesterday, there is bipartisan legislation on the Hill to do a number of things to protect our election system, to make it more difficult for foreign governments or foreigners to look like Americans on social media that are sitting on the Hill because of the politics of this. So that's one piece. The other piece of deterrence is imposing costs on the adversary. And we have not imposed enough costs on Vladimir Putin to the point that he stops. And that means what, sanctions? So I think it means, for me, it means broad sanctions. When we sanction just the individuals involved, Mm -hmm. you know, just the guys at the Internet Research Agency or just Russian intelligence officers, they wear that as a badge, right? And they're never going to face... They're never going to face an American courtroom. They're never going to face an American jail. So I don't think that's enough. I think you have to put broad-based sanctions that actually hurt the Russian economy and hurt the Russian middle class and put pressure on Vladimir Putin. What is the appropriate response for a campaign official in any election, but we're talking about 2020, if that campaign official receives some outreach from someone they have reasonable belief is from a foreign country with dirt on an opponent. What do they do that day? So this is another easy question. <laughs> I would think it's an easy question. An easy and the reason question. I ask is I keep trying to hear members of the current administration answer it forthrightly and honestly, I guess in a way that won't piss off the current president, some of whose allies keep saying, yeah, you, you take the information, it's a campaign, that's what you do. Not drawing a distinction between you know some local politician in some state in America versus a foreign power with whom we are hostile. So what's the easy answer? You call the Federal Bureau of Investigation. You don't call the CIA. You don't call the CIA. You call the Federal Bureau of Investigation. In fact, you can't even find CIA's phone number anywhere. (laughs) (laughs) You know, one thing we didn't talk about was I've met station chiefs from time to time. I think I can say that. It's kind of hilarious. They hand you their business card. (laughs) You'll go to to an event and you'll get the business card of, tell me if I shouldn't say this, and you'll get the business card of, you know, the head of the FBI, or if you're in a foreign country, the the legal attache from the DEA or whatever, 
And then some guy will give you a car and it just has a name on it. <laughs> like, that was the station chief. Yes. So it's not easy to find the CIA, so call the FBI. Yeah. Right? Their number is listed. Now, right? I should, to be fair, I'll say that foreign government officials show up and talk to campaigns. They want to find out what your views are on right. the world and what nothing your views are. Nothing, nothing wrong, wrong with that. that, right? When they start talking about influencing the current government or influencing an election or offering you um, assistance in an election is when you should call the FBI because those things are illegal. Is WikiLeaks a hostile intelligence yes. service? It's not a journalistic organization. And boy, I've had this discussion with journalists. WikiLeaks takes everything that it gets and it posts all of it. You know, the Washington Post and the New York Times had everything that Edward Snowden stole from the U.S. government. They did not publish all of it. They went through it very carefully. But is that the distinction because they exercise some more discretion? That's one distinction. Yeah. The other distinction is that WikiLeaks actually targets individuals for recruitment to steal information. And WikiLeaks actually helps people figure out how to steal that information. There is no editor that I know of the Washington Post or the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal who would allow their journalists to do that. Well, I'm agreeing with you, but I just want to, you know, to clarify a little bit. They do have their writers recruit sources. And, yes. and they do determine, well, you know, there's this particular family that we think is involved in crime, or we think there's a particular campaign that rumor has it may be engaged in this, that, or the other. So they have a target in mind, right. a company or, you know, the tobacco industry, for example. They try to recruit folks who might bring them inside information uh, that's sensitive to that company. How's that different? But they wouldn't, it's the same, but they wouldn't say to an individual, we want you to go get a job at CIA so you can feed us information. They wouldn't do that. And they wouldn't help figure out technically how to steal information from an IC computer. Do you worry that there'll be other things like WikiLeaks that are foreign intelligence services but not associated with a particular country? Sort of like an analog to Al-Qaeda sure, or something where else? where we kind of are with cyber, right? Yeah. As you know, cyber crime is a huge issue, right? Bigger than cyber espionage in some, in some ways. Um, and so all of these technological breakthroughs are allowing non-state actors to do things that they were never allowed to do before or never could do before. When America is attacked through the cyber realm, as, you know, cases we brought and other U.S. Attorney's offices brought, and I know you folks focused on, and it's very difficult to talk about this, and we tried, what is the propriety of the U.S. government retaliating, you know, disproportionate cyber attack in the other direction? Um, it's a tool, and it should be seen as a tool that can be used. I think you have to use it very carefully. Um, it seems, based on what I've read, that we used it during the midterms, that we reached out to the Internet Research Agency in the days around the election, and we made sure that they couldn't couldn't do their job around the election. That seems to me to be an appropriate use of that tool. I think you have to think about the downside. And the downside is that when we use cyber as an attack tool, even to defend ourselves, we're sending a signal to the rest of the world that it's okay to do that. We're setting a precedent. And we are, the United States is the most vulnerable country in the world to cyber attacks. We are the ones who live in the biggest glass house. So we got to be careful from that perspective. Right. North Korea barely has computing power. Exactly. <laughs> People exactly. forget that. They're developing nukes, but barely has computing power. Um, you've done a lot of things uh, in the agency, and, and now you look at it from some remove 
And over the course of your life, you've, I'm sure, thought about all sorts of issues relating to this concept, which is a complex one. How do you define justice? This is a question I'm going to ask you. Oh! <laughs> I could talk to you for six, seven. This is, a, this is a testament to how interesting this is. Um, Mike Morell, thanks for being on the show. Welcome. Great to see you. Thank you. The conversation continues for members of the Cafe Insider community. This week, Michael and I discuss why at the agency, an email about lunch has to be classified, how FISA oversight works, and more. To hear the exclusive Stay Tuned bonus and weekly Cafe Insider podcasts, go to cafe.com slash insider. So I want to end the show this week talking about one aspect of the border crisis. Over the weekend, you may have seen an interesting artistic installation at the border of specifically Sunland Park, New Mexico, and an opera, Mexico. It was a joint project between a professor of architecture, Ronald Ryle, and architect and artist, Virginia San Fratello. And what they did was they installed three seesaws at the border wall, because there are spaces in between the slats. Three pink seesaws, to be precise. And the image that we were treated to in the last few days is of small Mexican children on one side of the border and small American children on the other side of the border playing with each other on the seesaw, going up and down, with this enormous steel border between them. And it inspired a lot of reaction, a lot of it very positive. And my first reaction also, when I saw it, was how wonderful kids from one country playing with kids from another country, even in the midst of being separated by a wall. And I think that was the artist's intention, to bring some inspiration uh, and some uplift at a time when we're not feeling that so much, especially when we're talking about issues at the border. Rael posted on social media his view that the installation was, quote, a literal fulcrum for U.S.-Mexico relations. Children and adults were connected in meaningful ways on both sides. Here's how other people reacted. One called the symbolism of the seesaw just magical. Another said it was a beautiful reminder that we are connected. What happens on one side impacts the other. And video of the seesawing children went somewhat viral on the Internet. Lots of people applauded it, and I felt uplifted, too, by the image. But some people wondered about it, and I want to tell you what some of the critics said. As the Washington Post pointed out in an article, some on social media thought they saw darker undertones in the installation, with some saying they felt it was a Pollyanna message about equality and unity, or a dystopian portrait of a security-obsessed future. A little bit of a different view. One user on Twitter said the following, quote, It's been interesting to see the response to the seesaw installation at the border many celebrating it as a beautiful symbol of connection, yet for me, it evokes sadness and rage. That's what makes it powerful. It's a glaring image of injustice and robbed childhoods. Close quote. Here's another. Totally disinterested in art that helps us cope with art that fails to challenge present material conditions. You naturalize the border when you invite leisure around and despite it. Close quote. So I raise this not because I have a strong view one way or the other, but it's an interesting time we live in where there are bad things happening, there are things we can all agree should not be happening, like separations of families from their children and delays in reunifying them. There can be differences of opinion about whether you criminalize crossing into the United States or deal with it civilly. That's been one of the points of debate among the Democratic presidential candidates. But even debate about images and videos that look like they're magical and joyous and inspirational. To some people, it looks that way. And to other people, it looks like insidious normalizing. And maybe the better way to think about the art is that that's the point, to get folks to think about this. I don't think you have to be someone who thinks, well, it's wonderful and beautiful and magical, and therefore we'll celebrate it and feel good about things and feel good about ourselves and feel good about our country and feel good about the border. 
versus looking at it and feeling rage and thinking, well, this is terrible and it normalizes things and it causes us to feel better about stuff when we shouldn't be. I think for now, at least, the purpose of that art is to have this kind of discussion. What is it that we should be thinking about with respect to the border? What is it that we should know about the border? And what is it that should be normalized or not normalized? Tell us what you think. Well, that's it for this episode of Stay Tuned. Thanks again to my guest, Michael Morell. Stay Tuned is presented by CAFE. The executive producer is Tamara Sepper. The senior producer is Aaron Dalton. And the CAFE team is Carla Pierini, Julia Doyle, Calvin Lord, Benet Basti, and Jeff Eisenman. Our music is by Andrew Dost. I'm Preet Bharara. Stay tuned. Simply Safe is my top choice for home security, in part because Simply Safe offers around the clock professional monitoring for just $15 a month. There's no contract or hidden fees, and the prices are always fair and honest. What truly makes Simply Safe stand out? Their video verification technology, which allows them to visually confirm that a break in is happening, so police get to the scene 3.5 times faster. Visit slash Preet to get free shipping and a 60 day risk free trial. That's slash Preet. slash Preet. Hey folks, Cafe recently launched something to help you keep on top of today's news cycle. It's a newsletter that recaps news and analysis of politically charged legal matters, the Cafe Brief. Sign up to stay informed at cafe.com slash brief. That's cafe.com slash brief. Support for this show comes from Fundrise. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting Fundrise.com Fox. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at Fundrise.com flagship. This is a paid advertisement.